Hello, welcome back. I'm your host, Evan Brand, functional medicine practitioner. Thank you for joining me. You heard from our new friend, Dr. Ken Brown, medical doc, who's going functional with his gastroenterology practice, and he has a company called Atron Teal. They sponsor the show. Now, the Atron Teal product that we spoke about, the main symptom that people are dealing with that can benefit from this formula abdominal discomfort, constipation, diarrhea, bloating. Typically, there's an issue like SIBO. Now, I tell a lot of my clients, I don't like the term SIBO because it's too generic. It's like SIBO, okay? But that doesn't tell you anything about the species of bacteria. My goal is to find the species. Now, in the meantime, while you're doing the investigation phase, a product like Atrontil is something you can use to basically help keep you more regular help to mitigate some of the symptoms, some of the discomfort you're dealing with. You always have to work to the root cause. There's still a root cause there that you got to find. But Atrontil is something that you can use in the meantime while you're trying to dig to that root cause. It's going to help knock down some of the overgrowth in terms of bacteria. So if you have SIBO, this is a formula that you can use, but I encourage you, you got to keep working deeper. You got to find, fix the root cause. But Atrontil, they're offering a 10%, I believe, discount to my listeners. So if you go to lovemytummy.com, I know it's silly, lovemytummy.com slash Evan, you'll get 10% off. You'll see my face there. So you'll know you'll enter the coupon code Evan at checkout and you can order it and try it out. Now, if you've got family members who don't listen or care about functional medicine, they're probably the perfect candidate because there's somebody who just wants a quick fix. That's a quick fix. Is it a band-aid? Maybe, but it's going to help you. So check it out. Thank you, Ken and the team, for sponsoring the show. Now, let's talk with my friend Luke Story. I've had him on the podcast before. I've been on his podcast, which has just massively, massively uh, grown over the past couple of years. So, Luke, I'm so proud of you for doing this. And he's really, really spread his word and message very, very far. Luke calls himself the lifestylist because he was a stylist for a long time with celebrities, which we'll talk about some of his history today. And then he started realizing, hey, look, I want to style my life. I want to modify my environment. I want to use saunas and float tanks and do massages and learn to play guitar and go to meditation retreats. And so now he is basically a lifestyle designer, which I just love that terminology. So this is a really fun conversation, super decompressing episode for me. I really just, we had no plan. We had no script, which we never do, but we we had not even a direction of what we wanted to talk about. So listen to us ramble and have a blast together as we talk about accessing the deep consciousness that our ancestors accessed for so long. And I believe we're deprived of accessing deep thought because we're stuck in fight or flight because we've got cell phone notifications on and TV and traffic and all that. We're just missing out on what it means to be a human, in my opinion. And so we really have to start engaging that mode of our nervous system again. We really have to start honoring and just feeling that part of our brain and body that we just ignore. So I hope you enjoy this. I hope it inspires you. If you need help, you want to reach out, schedule a functional medicine consult with myself, I'd love to help you. Go to my site, evanbrand.com, and you can schedule. All right, enjoy. Luke Story, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Evan. Good to see you again, dude. You too, man. Hey, well, uh, we did two days ago, we did an interview on your show, so that will be fun for people to go check out. I talked about nootropics, which I don't talk about much anymore because I talk about functional medicine so much. So people will probably get a kick out of that. Dude, that was an epic interview. I encourage your listeners to definitely check it out. It's going to be a two-parter. I think we went like two hours. So it'll come out on a Tuesday and Friday, probably in, I would say in August. 
Sweet. Yeah, we're just in the beginning of July now as we record this. So for whoever's listening. Yeah, that was super fun. I love doing the show trades because it's like, you know how it is when you're the host, you can only talk so much and you got to give your guest space to kind of roll. Um, so it's it's fun to be able to do both because there's all kinds of things I'm discovering all the time and I interview people and I'm like, Luke, shut up, shut up. I don't want to talk too much, but they end up sometimes just being a conversation, you know, but it's it's fun to be interviewed too and just be able to like unload a lot of valuable stuff for, for the is. other party's listener. Yeah, I know. I love being in the hot seat. How's it been going podcasting? I mean, you're killing it. You've you've almost uh, you're about to pass me in terms of reviews on iTunes. I'm a bit jealous. How <laughs> are to, you serious? Yeah, dude. Like, let me let me see what you're up to. You're you're getting those uh, you're getting those podcast reviews quickly. I need to learn your secret. That's funny, man. Well, basically, I just I beg and plead my audience all the time to do it. I'll also like if people DM me on Instagram or like comment on my Instagram or Facebook and stuff, I send them like a, hey, you know, love the support. Thanks for saying hi. But what would be really rad is if you could do an iTunes review. Oh, you know what else I, you know what else I did, Evan, that's cool is I, um, I made a landing page, which is like LukeStory.com how to iTunes review because it's actually really hard to get in there and leave a review. And I think that deters a lot of people that aren't super techie. It's actually a big pain in the ass to leave a review. I know. So, so I made like a, uh, like an instructional manual on how to do it on various devices. And I think that makes it easier for people. Uh, well, you're, you're, you're killing it. You've got 187 ratings now on iTunes. So congrats. Is that, is that good for one year? That's, I don't even know. I think that's great. I mean, some of the, some of the top, top, top of the, show self-help health podcast they may have a thousand but 187 dude it's it's not easy to get 187 people to go through that process cool awesome thanks for the encouragement but yeah it's been fun dude i mean i'm how many years have you been going now uh this will be fifth this will be the fifth year this year okay so i've i've been doing it for a year as of june that was my year anniversary i had neil strauss on on uh june 6th that was my one year anniversary episode I still haven't listened to uh, myself because I like to listen back and kind of actually hear what the guest is saying, you know, because yep. when I'm interviewing, I'm thinking about the next thing and all that. But uh, what's cool about having a show, dude, which I found out from the very beginning is you get to talk to people that normally probably wouldn't return your phone call for free. And, <laughs> and that was something that I immediately identified as being like when I had you on the show or Jack Cruz, like people that I listen to or go see speak at conferences like Daniel Vitalis or Dave Asprey or David Wolf, all these different experts. And it's basically like if you have a show that's somewhat viable, they'll sit down and talk to you for a couple hours. And I think part of why my show has been popular is I'm so passionate about whatever my guests have to say. Because I'm really asking the questions for myself in a sense. You know what I mean? Of course. So it's like these are things I'm really, really curious about on a personal level. And I think that enthusiasm carries over into the audience and I get them excited because I'm so excited to be talking to that person, you know? Yeah, it's addicting. Yeah, I mean, I have I wouldn't have ever been, ever been able to, to call up Mark Hyman or Dr. Mercola and say, hey, can I just – pick your brain for an hour <laughs> exactly dude yeah exactly i know it's so a that's good, it's, that, a good it's, it's been really fun it's been really fun and also just coming from the entertainment industry and the fashion industry in hollywood i find you know the health and wellness thing is 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 big but in a sense people on that side of the world oftentimes have never heard of any of this stuff they don't know there's like 
natural cures for cancer or like they don't know about functional med. They're still in the old paradigm that like your doctor is a god that you have to listen to that you can't just take care of yourself and have autonomy as a human being. Um, so it's it's been fun for me to kind of cross over and share this type of sort of fringe, you know, medical herbalism, meditation, mindfulness, all this stuff with people who are maybe more materialistically oriented in ways at times. Yep. Give people a bit of your background. They, If they haven't heard of your podcast before, they haven't listened to you, or they didn't hear the first interview that you did on my show, tell people what you've been up to for the last two decades. Yeah, so I moved to Hollywood in 1989, uh, proceeded to become a very dedicated drug addict and musician. I don't know which came first. Um, I think the drug addict won in the end because <laughs> I eventually gave up both of them. But uh, drugs, I, I gave up first. Um, but, you know, I lived the, the really self-destructive Hollywood lifestyle, the classic case where, you know, at first it was fun, then it was fun with problems, then it was problems, then it was problems with problems. And, uh, you know, eventually sought help and, and as a result started really looking into natural healing, alternative medicine, fasting, juicing, all the stuff that was really big like in the mid-90s in terms of the health world. That's when health food stores were still like bulk bins of oats and granola (laughs) and stuff like that. And bee pollen was like the big superfood, you know, which it probably still is, but, you know, we've come a long way. But I got really into health food and meditation and, um, you know, going to India to learn, you know, uh, ancient Ayurvedic tricks for, you know, calming the mind and all sorts of weird stuff that I got into. And, um, I mean, dude, I just, anything that I heard that was good for you on a mind, body, spirit level, I tried it. And any expert I found, I sought them out and was just reading books about spirituality and Kabbalah and yoga and anything I could do to just recover from those years of self-destruction. And that was 20, 20 plus years ago, 20 and a half years ago or so that that journey started. But Along at the same time, I somehow kind of was I was a musician, which I didn't really make a living doing that ever. But I met a lot of people in the fashion industry. Eventually, I became a fashion stylist, which is somebody who dresses celebrities and models and things like that for a living. So I went from this kid like fresh out of rehab at 26 years old to working as an assistant stylist for Aerosmith's stylist, you know. So I just was like, I was actually homeless when I started working for them. You know, I had nowhere to live. I was just sleeping on couches, but I like work for Aerosmith. And that was, you know, 1997 or so. And that started a 17 year career in the fashion and entertainment industry in Hollywood, where I went on to dress, you know, all sorts of different celebrities and stuff, mostly in the music industry. And that was a really fun job because it's creative and you're kind of your own boss and you don't really have a normal schedule. So for my personality type, which is kind of free spirited and not so into showing up at the same building at the same time every day, it was a great career. And um, all the all the while I was doing this stuff, being what you would now call a biohacker, um, kind of just, you know, as a personal hobby and just a way to kind of improve my life. And then 10 years into my career, I started a business that I still own and co-operate with my partner, Lauren, and uh, that's called School of Style. And that's like a boutique business school for people that want to become a fashion or a personal stylist. 
So that's been going for eight, nine years now almost. And we do classes in New York and LA and online. So that's really the only connection I have to that world anymore because I retired from being a stylist about two years ago. And then a year ago, started my podcast and doing consulting and coaching and stuff. So I've sort of been teetering between these two worlds of this sort of materialistic Hollywood world. But at the same time, as soon as I get off work, I'm going to like a sound bath or a Kundalini yoga class or meditation or the Bulletproof Conference or, you know, whatever, and kind of really being more passionate about this world. So I finally... I'm figuring out how to turn that into a business, and the podcast is kind of the first step in doing that. So my story is one of the phoenix rising from the ashes and now going on to help other people who have some similar challenges overcome them. Love it, man. Over the years, what have been the biggest needle movers? There's so much stuff out there. There's bee pollen. There's meditation. There's yoga. You just uh, got back from this pretty intense uh, I don't know if we call it therapy. I don't want to put the word in your mouth. It was, yeah, it was definitely therapy, dude. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've had a lot of that in my life, yeah. Well, so in, in on your podcast, I mentioned the fact that a lot of people want the low-hanging fruit, the diet, the lifestyle, the go-to-bed, the turn-off-your-Wi-Fi router. People like the easy, low-hanging fruit. However, sometimes they're a bit shocked that they're still depressed or they're still angry or they still are bitter towards other people or they just don't like humanity. And I said on your show, look, it doesn't matter how much bone broth you drink. If you've got a terrible spouse or you're in a terrible relationship, it's not going to matter. It's not going to counteract that. So um, for you, what have been the biggest needle movers? And maybe it's not biohacking. Maybe it is just ditching a bad relationship. But what have been the biggest things for you where you're like, oh, my God, I'm a thousand pounds lighter than I was before I did this? Yeah, it's it's it's. It's a tricky question because say we just we, we work on the inner game, what I would call inner game, you know, where you're learning how to meditate, you're going to therapy, you're joining uh, 12-step groups, you're, you're reading self-help books, you're really working on your mindset and your emotional health and like you said, your relationships and healing past trauma, childhood abandonment issues, toxic parents, toxic relationships, all that stuff. It's, it's kind of weird because – I think that's really the most important work that anyone can do, but it's also difficult to do that if you have a brain full of MSG and aspartame and canola oil and, you know, environmental toxins and you're sleeping next to your Wi-Fi router, <laughs> you know, it's like you can meditate all day long, but good luck meditating if your neurotransmitters are trashed and your hormones are off balance and you, you just live in a constant state of anxiety because your um, nervous system is tweaked, you know, it's like... You kind of have to do everything to a degree, I think. Yeah. But I would say for me, the first thing was the most meaningful was to start doing fasting, you know, sugar-free juice fasting, colonics, just detoxing from that lifestyle that I'd lived for so long. That was the first step where I started just feeling lighter and kind of waking back up. My brain turned on. Uh, unfortunately, during the late 90s, there, was, um, you, you, there wasn't such, so much information available in terms of diet. So we all figured out that like factory farm meat and dairy and all that was really bad for you. So most of us kind of became vegetarians. Most people, I mean, like that wanted to get healthy and stuff, like being vegetarian was the obvious answer because it was like 
the paradigm was you either eat at McDonald's or you're a vegetarian and you eat organic soy products or whatever, you know? So I became a vegetarian for 10 years and that kind of derailed my health in many ways. Like it was better than eating Domino's pizza and Burger King or whatever I was eating before that, but I was just so inflamed still. So, you know, at least I was fasting and eating a cleaner diet, albeit it was very heavy in carbs and wheat, soy, corn, a lot of very inflammatory foods. But that was the first step and then starting to just have an interest in spiritual concepts and principles and that meant you know going to various like self-help groups and therapy and uh, meditation groups and I find that the group setting is really powerful much more so than just oh I'm going to read a book on mindfulness and just be that way from now on it's like I needed teachers and for lack of a better term some gurus to kind of follow so I really had help along the way to help me identify what my real problem was psychologically because I'd already been through at that point a lot of therapy for childhood issues and I was sent to this like boarding school and was in therapy basically five, six days a week for two years from 14 to 16 years old. So I'd looked at a lot of that stuff but I needed help with the spiritual pursuit and I needed to be presented in a way that was not too out there or too religious um, so that I could apply it. And that's when I started first practicing meditation and just reading spiritual books and going to any group meditations and things like that, that I could. So I was kind of getting my body at least strong enough and my mind focused enough to start looking more inwardly. That was the first big needle movers, as I would say. Then the next one was probably stopping being a vegetarian <laughs> you know that's when my health really improved because i found out you you actually you know you, i don't have to tell you mr not just paleo but that we've actually evolved to eat a certain way and as the closest i can get to the way that we've evolved to eat the better so um i think i really started to change physically through I think it's kind of the bulletproof diet. You know, this is going back four years ago or so, long before the book came out. I started drinking bulletproof coffee and I felt really good on these fats and I started eating clean meats again and found that, um, you know, you, you can actually have a very clean diet with certain wild seafood and grass-fed meat and pastured eggs and these kind of really what I believe now are, are superfoods to a degree. And so that was like a big change, just getting on um, more of a ketogenic diet, not strictly, but just kind of a cyclical by accident, like we talked about the other day. It's just, I never was like testing my ketones or anything like yeah. that. It's just, I eat a lot of fats, as many vegetables as I can stand. So I'm not really into vegetables, but I eat them, you know, a lot of green smoothies to just get them down quick. And then, um, and then I started really having a lot of energy. And so that, those are kind of the macro changes. Then there's like, all of the little tweaks that I've been exploring over the past few years, like the Wim Hof method, you know, really oxygenating my body through breathing techniques. It's something that's really a huge part of Kundalini yoga, which I've been doing for about five years, I'm doing ice baths, cryotherapy, bringing down the inflammation, learning how to control that um, nervous system response to cold doing tons of infrared saunas. I mean, I, I don't know anyone that can like go toe to toe with cold and hot exposure with me. Like I'll outlast anyone I know in a sauna or an ice bath. Not that it's a competition. It's not like an ego thing, like who's tougher. It's just, it's fun to see that I've adapted in a way that my ancestors were probably adapted. 
Um, so I like playing with the hot and cold and then just being in nature as much as possible, you know, doing hot springs, every river or Creek I ever see that's not polluted. I jump in that shit. I don't care what time of year it is, you know, really just, even though I live in Los Angeles, I do everything I can to escape the city one or two days a week and get outdoors. <clears throat> so that's been huge. How do and you then do think, that? Do you just, you just pick a place on the map and just drive or you just take a well, couple hour trip? Yeah, in LA, it's cool because you're a lot of people don't know this because when you fly into Los Angeles, it looks like, you know, a thousand miles of city when you when you land in LAX and then ocean, you know, so it's like they think the only way to get out of the city is like jumping in the ocean. But surprisingly, we actually have a lot of pretty wild areas here, you know, right outside of LA, you've got Angeles Crest Forest, which is a massive mountain range. I don't know how many miles, but there's a lot of places to play up there. I go get spring water up there, for example. There's a a spring-fed lake up uh, there called Hidden Lake, just really random spot where you can go swim in ice-cold spring water. And that's, uh, you know, maybe hour and a half outside of the city. Then you've got Joshua Tree in the desert. Next to Joshua Tree, there's um, Desert Hot Springs. There's a number of little mom-and-pop resorts where you can go soak in hot springs. Um, then you've got uh, you've got Ojai and Santa Barbara. There's also a great hot springs up in Ojai and just, you know, really great hikes and rivers to swim in and things like that. And then you've got the whole coastline of Southern California, too. And as you head a little bit north, that gets more and more rugged versus Orange County, where it gets kind of more classic, like Baywatch, beachy with lots of people. But there is some, you know, fairly rugged coastline that's not overpopulated. And then, of course, you drive up the coast. Well, it's closed down because of landslides now, but you can go to Big Sur. You know, that's a great getaway here. And then, um, and then Sedona's, you know, six hours away in Arizona, which if you want to go like hardcore desert, that's a great place too. Cause there's actually water there. Like the thing that sucks about Joshua tree, it's beautiful. Like Joshua tree national park is wonderful, but there's no water anywhere. It's like desert desert and I'm a water dog, you know? So I like Sedona cause there's a, you can get hot as shit climbing around the rocks and doing the desert thing, but there's a couple nice rivers there that you can go dunk in, which is important for me. So you find ways, you know, you find ways. And wherever I go uh, when I travel, I usually try to find some nature there. There were years ago that with my business school of style, I'd go to a number of different cities every year. So if I flew into Atlanta, I would just Google where any hot springs are, any drinking water springs that can go collect water. And that's kind of the way that I get myself out of the woods. I have to have sort of a target or a goal in mind, which for me usually includes finding water to drink or jump into. And that like will pull me out of any city environment because I have that sort of like, you know, like I'm on the hunt. I'm trying to find like this river or the swimming hole or some waterfall or, you know, something that's like fun to do outdoors, which usually involves finding the water. It's interesting you, you said that. I just realized maybe a month ago, it was right after I bought my wool t-shirt that I told you about, my new wool shirt that I had purchased. It, it was a, a bit pricey and I took it off on the trail. I put it in my pocket. My wife needed something out of my pocket. Long story short, the shirt got lost on the trail. I didn't notice it till the very end, so I had to go back like two and a half miles on the trail. But my energy, my motivation to hike those two miles to and fro, my motivation was double or triple what it was just to hike the trail for completion. I didn't right, have any, right. any spring or anything to find, but because I had a mission to get back down the trail as quick as possible to go find out where the shirt fell out of my pocket, I was way more motivated. So I think that's a good goal for me. I need to start planning and having a 
a little bit of creativity or, or just setting myself up to make it more like a video game to, to be on the trail. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it helps to have your eye on the prize. I mean, it, it motivates you. I actually, I don't really like hiking anywhere where there's not water at the end of the hike. Like that's most hikes I do. There's going to be some kind of water that I can get into to, uh, you know, some degree, at least even if I'm just waiting around in there. There's yeah. one I want to do. I didn't get to do it my last trip to the Smokies, but if you ever come to this side of the country, um, go to Great Smoky Mountains. There's a trail there called Ramsey Cascades Trail. Actually, somebody just died there about a few weeks ago because he was trying to take a selfie at the top and fell off, and it's like a 100-foot uh, drop. Um, Yikes. But, but it's supposed to be an amazing waterfall. It's like five miles in one of the rare old-growth forests on this side of the Mississippi because the terrain was so rugged that they literally couldn't get the trains in. Like when they started getting the trains in the mountains in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that's when deforestation really started tearing up the Midwest. But luckily, this part was so intense in terms of terrain that they couldn't get the train rails back in there. And so you've got the potential to see four or 500-year-old trees east of the Mississippi, which is unheard of. And like I said, there's a hundred foot waterfall there, but we didn't get to make it because we had the baby with us. And we thought, well, five miles may be a little bit intense. It's going to get hot. We've got the baby strapped onto us. The temperature really gets, you know, it it gets it gets moist. Yeah, in the forest. yeah. Well, I from what I observe with friends that have kids that they change the game you know there's like a totally new protocol for living when especially a baby's involved so you have to kind of adapt to that yeah but that's awesome and i i haven't spent a lot of time in your neck of the woods the closest i've probably been is in north carolina oh man there's a college town there what the hell is, is it, it called Never... no it's up in the mountains more um outside of charlotte it's like maybe an hour outside of Charlotte. Oh God, what is I'd it called? Look. I'm gonna pull. I up can't the remember right now. Let's see. I'm thinking Asheville, man. That's no, it wasn't. It wasn't Asheville. It's like a short name, like Trent or something. Uh, there's a college there too. Huh. I love how you can Google on these uh, recordings. I'm always scared if I touch my computer, it's gonna like ruin the recording. Anyway, uh, that's the closest I've been. But I, I spent some time in the beautiful country there in North Carolina up in the mountains. And it was fantastic, like swimming in rivers and stuff. It was really, really nice. It's a different world. And we've got tons of bears over here, too. Daniel Boone National Forest, the Pisgah National Forest. You've got the Great Smoky Mountains. We saw, believe it or not, we saw more black bear than deer. Wow. Like wow. The, the, the bear to deer ratio was seven to one. And they need to they need to uh, loosen up the bear hunting regulations. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know if they would ever do that because there's so many national national park territory they won't let you hunt on it. But man, it was oh right right it it's been amazing. Man, let me let me get back to you. Sure, sure. This Hoffman was it called the Hoffman Institute? Is the Hoff just... it, the the place where they hold the uh, retreat is called the Hoffman Institute, but the actual thing is called the Hoffman Process. Okay, now I saw a picture and, that you posted, and there were redwood trees, and redwood's like my favorite tree of all time. I was like, man, I'm going to go there just for the trees. Ah, uh, dude, yeah, the, the, there's a little redwood grove on the property. It's in uh, Napa Valley. It's uh, very close to a town called Calistoga, which is a great place. They have a bunch of hot springs there, so it's no accident that was where I chose to go. But yeah, the Hoffman Process, I'm actually going to do a podcast on it with the director, because it was just really powerful experience for me. Um, it's a seven-day program where 
you turn in your phone, you don't have a computer, you don't have books, you don't have music, you don't have Netflix, it's just you and your life. And the process is about identifying obsessive or negative or destructive patterns that you display in your adult life that are causing you and your relationships harm and really getting to the root cause of those patterns, which usually has to do with having wacky parents and trauma in your childhood and things like that. So it's a somewhat classical therapy model, like, oh, you do this because your parents did this, you know. But what's interesting about Hoffman is it's much more spiritual, spiritually oriented. So it's not just like a psychoanalytical experience. It's half that and then half spiritual, but um, not spiritual in a religious sense, more about getting to know your higher or spiritual self better and leading in your life and making more of your decisions from that inner knowing. So there's not really like any sort of dogmatic spiritual approach, but there are a lot of guided meditations and um, almost like, I won't say it's not technically hypnosis, but there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on at the same time. So you're sort of like digging up all these ghosts of the past and looking at your family history and your family of origin and all that, which is typical of therapy. But because it's happening in a group setting and it's contextualized in a way that the goal of it is not just to psychoanalyze yourself mentally, it's actually to identify your intellect or the mind and give it its proper place in your life to give your feelings or your ego or the emotional child, as they call it, its proper place in life and identifying your body as something that's relevant that you can be in communication with and listen to. And then, as I said, your spiritual or your what I would call your higher self or your true self. So they have a concept called a quadrinity that includes those four aspects of your own humanity, right? And so I liked that approach a lot because if you start to do spiritual practices and study meditation and practice these kind of things. There's And even in religion, there's a lot of belief that the ego is bad. You know, it's like, oh, that's my ego. God, I'm a bad person because I have an ego. It's like, dude, no, whatever created us gave us an ego as a survival mechanism. Or many of us are hypnotized by our mind and compulsive thinking, especially in my life. I've really, really spent so much energy working on negative self-talk and just repetitive, obsessive thinking. And so... I spent so many years fighting my mind and trying to make my mind stop thinking or to squash harmful or negative emotions and things like that. And their approach I really like because it's it's about sort of acknowledging and accepting those parts of yourself as a person, but identifying how when you're controlled by your emotions or your ego or you're controlled by your intellect rather than you controlling them – then that's when pathology starts and that's when these negative um, behavior patterns and and just, uh, you know, unhappiness and depression and anxiety and all these things really manifest. So it was a it was a very intensive week of inner work and it was very transformational. In fact, I just got out of it, I don't know, three weeks ago or something. And it hasn't even quite hit me yet <laughs> what happened, you know, because it's it's really fast and you go really deep. It's experiential therapy. So you're you're doing a lot of um, expression of these emotions and things like that and really, really being honest with yourself. And then, as I said, in a group setting, exposing a lot of things that are really hard to look at. And then they sort of rebuild you and you walk out with a much higher degree of self-love and self-acceptance, but then reintegrating back into the world is really weird. So that's kind of the phase that I'm in now. I'm like, huh, I feel different. I'm 
I'm responding to life differently than I did prior to going there, but I'm still sort of catching up with myself, you know, where I'm aware of the emotions, I'm aware of the mind, but I don't know. I think the net result was just kind of more self-respect, self-love. Like I just identified that I've been playing really small in my life. What do you and, mean? Um, I mean that <laughs> the way that other people view me is they hold me in a much higher esteem typically than I hold myself. I think we all do that. We all do, but it doesn't have to be that way. You know, some of us to a lesser or greater degree, and that's just human nature, of course. I mean, you know, most of us have some sort of self-worth or self-esteem issues. And I think unless you grew up with like the healthiest, emotionally healthiest parents that nurtured you and supported you and stayed together and loved you and gave you confidence. I mean, if, if you won the parent lottery, you might not have a lot of that. But most people I know didn't have an ideal upbringing and there was some sort of trauma or abuse or abandonment that imprinted on them and this is the case for me that they're worthless you know and that's kind of the game of life is to derive actual self-worth from just who you are and your character rather than a lamborghini or a title at a company or a bank account or what home you own. i mean this is the game that we all well many of us play is trying to get that validation externally rather than actually cultivating that from within so yeah, I mean, for someone who's, especially from my background, I've achieved a lot of success on a lot of levels, you know, but I don't view myself most of the time as a guy who's successful. I still feel like a loser a lot of the time. I mean, I'm just being totally real. And so why? Why is that? And that was that was what the Hoffman process was about for me. Like, where do these false beliefs and these limitations actually come from? And finding out where they come from doesn't necessarily change them, but it makes it easier to break the pattern because I see through the fallacy of those beliefs. It's like they become they become sort of phantoms. It's less real when I see like, man, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the world or the most talented, but shit, I do some cool stuff, you know? It's like, wow, who knew? I'm actually a pretty good guy. I'm fairly smart and I make a positive contribution to the world and I have a big heart. I'm compassionate. I have really high empathy, you know, identifying those things about myself that make me feel good about myself that come from within rather than like, Ooh, I'm a podcaster or this or that, or some of those external things that I think a lot of us derive our sense of self-worth from, you know, and this, I mean, this kind of stuff, like we, we were talking about, it's a long answer. I know. So bear with me, but it's like, dude, you can eat all the goji berries you want that's not going to give you what I'm talking about. But at the same time, it's difficult to do all of the inner work if you feel like crap all the time and you're suffering from clinical depression or, you know, acute anxiety. So it's like a multifaceted approach. But this stuff to me is like where the rubber meets the road. So what you find is like, even just having done that inner work, I'm a little less obsessive about like my food and stuff now. You know what I mean? It's like, I like loosen up a little because I'm like, you know what? I don't have to be so controlling because I don't feel so threatened about being harmed or dying or, you know, whatever it is that makes a person like me so controlling in certain cases. I'm able to just sort of surrender and let go of some outcomes that I might have been hanging on to. So it really is like a fully integrative approach to life where I'm paying attention to the body, but also to my feelings, to my intellect, to my heart, my soul, my intuition, and and of course, as you mentioned, my relationships. Well, people ditch their gut feelings all the time. You've got a gut that's trying to tell you something, and now maybe that gut message isn't is very 
clear as it should be if you've got gut bugs, if you've got parasites and bacteria and yeast in the gut, maybe that gut feeling's not as accurate as it could be. But it's amazing to see how many people, whether it's you, myself, other people that are affected by the monkey in our own minds that beats us up because I probably butcher his name. It's probably pronounced differently, but Ed Sheeran, Ed Sheeran, he's like a, a redheaded uh, musician. He's oh, some- yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce the name either, but I know the guy, yeah. All right, so he's had some giant, giant songs. I mean, probably billions and billions of songs sold, millions of dollars generated, massive tours, insane fame and popularity. And he just had an article come out yesterday about him where he's ditching social media completely because of trolls, basically. And he said that, he said, no matter. If I get a million positive pats on the back, a million positive uh, comments towards my work, if I get one, you suck, it it ruins his day. And so he's literally just ditching the internet, basically. I don't know if it's the internet completely, if it's just social media. I mean, social media is basically the internet anyway, the current state of the internet. And I just think that's amazing to someone that has millions of people idolizing them, but yet they're just they're, I mean they're just a person I guess at the end of the day so maybe it's not surprising but it's just interesting someone you would think gets so much ego boosting so much fluffing on a daily basis and they still get affected by one troll that says you suck it's almost like we've got this gene or like you mentioned something from our childhood it's like a pre-programming that sets us up to be more to more susceptible to that and then you've got some people who they love haters they love negative stuff towards them because it motivates them more. I think it's interesting how it can go either way. Yeah, man. You know, I think it goes back to that like self-worth thing that you, it seems to be sort of a nurture thing from your parents, right? So as I said, you have the, the ideal parents that just give you tons of unconditional love and support and, you know, don't prop you up, but let you make your own mistakes, but they're there, they got your back, like that kind of thing. I think that if you get that approval, coming up like that legitimate healthy level of approval which you know is so rare in our culture uh <laughs> i mean i don't know anyone that's had it but maybe i hang out with a lot of broken people cuz we all help you know support and and put each other back together but it's that instinct for popularity and approval praise accolades and i think for me you, you know i look at it as just it's like an instinctive tribal sort of thing. So you go back 200,000 years and if you're like the jerk that no one likes in your tribe and you're ostracized, you're literally going to die because they're going to just leave you behind or banish (laughs) you from the tribe, you know, as they're trekking across the plains of Montana, like peace, Luke, you've been a dick. No one likes you and you're good luck with the, you know, the, um, roving mountain lions or whatever, you know what I mean? So it's like, you're left alone. So it's it's a natural drive to want to be liked and have a sense of community and connection with people. But I think in my case, for whatever reason, and the why doesn't really matter in the end of the day, man, it's, it's more about like identifying as that operational in my life, is I was never really, I mean, not to say that my parents didn't love me, but I didn't grow up in a healthy environment, put it that way. So I think my need for approval and appreciation and acceptance from other people has probably been blown out of proportion. Like many of my other instincts, like used to be anger or eating too much of this food or smoking or having sex too much with too many people or whatever it is, 
it's like the instincts kind of are out of control when they're not managed and fulfilled when you're a youngster. So if you're identified with your ego, then trolls are really going to hurt your feelings because you're still looking outside of yourself for that validation. You know, it's like I interviewed um, David Wolf, the health, you know, I won't call him a raw food guru or vegan guru anymore because he's not technically um, after I found out in our interview. What's he doing now? He said he does some ghee and like a little bit of, I don't think he said, oh, he said ghee and goat cheese and basically, I mean, he admitted it on my show, which is great. He goes, dude, I'll just be honest with you. I got sick of eating nuts. Yeah. You know, after being a vegan for so long, it's like, dude, how many almonds can you eat when you want some <laughs> calories? You know, just like almonds and avocados. Okay. <laughs> that gets old. But, uh, but, but I asked him about trolls because dude, he's got 7 million Facebook followers. Just for starters. Yeah. I mean, his reach is insane. And so, and he's a heavily trolled public figure because his ideas are so controversial. I mean, I think he's like a flat earth supporter. I mean, he's got some really out there ideas that really piss people off. And he's also someone that sells, you know, superfoods and supplements. So he's under a lot of scrutiny from the snake oil haters and stuff. But I asked him, I said, dude, you know, you have such this huge public presence. You've been speaking around the world for 25 years to literally like millions of people. And so many people like talk shit about you. How do you deal with that? And he had a really great answer. He just said, you know, when I see that stuff, man, I just, I feel so much compassion for those people because they must be in so much pain personally. They must really not be enjoying their lives. And how I know that is because if they have time to sit there and try to hurt someone through a keyboard on the internet and that's how they're spending their time, they have to be in a lot of internal pain and I really feel a lot of compassion and empathy for them because God, it must be difficult to live with so much pain that you have to release it somehow onto people that you don't even know. I mean, I'm paraphrasing his answer, but yeah. it was it was like an it wasn't like, "Oh, I just feel sorry for them because they don't know how awesome I am." You know, it wasn't that. It was like, "Oh, man, those poor people, I really I really feel bad for them," you know? And he wasn't being like snide about it. It was it to me it felt very authentic. He's like, "Yeah, God, that must suck to like be so bummed that you have to try to bum everyone else out." I was like, that's really true. You know, that's really true. But I think if you have a positive sense of self in a, in a healthy way where your ego is sort of right sized, where you, you feel good about yourself, but you know, you still have work to do. There's always room for improvement. You identify that, but you also acknowledge the accomplishments and skills and talents that you've been bestowed with. Then you have sort of a, a balanced self image and you won't be too high off the approval when someone's like oh my god you're the best thing ever you're like cool whatever and the same way if someone's like you're the biggest piece of crap in the world you're sort of unaffected either way and that's where i'm always trying to strive for is like sort of a sense of neutrality or balance or humility um that's that's my goal is to just kind of like feel good about myself and not take criticism or compliments uh too um too um intensely Yep. That's so much healthier. I mean, I don't even want to mention what's out there, but there's so much attempted destruction at the ego. Our species wouldn't have survived if we didn't have an ego. Maybe it wouldn't have existed. Maybe our ancient humans didn't exist the same way. Maybe the alpha male of the tribe wasn't the same type of alpha male that exists in apes. Maybe it was more intense. I don't know. But to me, without somewhat of an ego without some sense of self-care like self-love self-care 
how could you how could you live a full life if you don't have any of that if you just i'm just a nobody it's not to say you have to, i'm a nobody i'm i'm worthless like that's how i don't know maybe i'm interpreting uh, people's messages that talk about ego being a bad thing maybe i'm interpreting their message wrong or i haven't looked into it enough but to me the demonizing of the ego just seems like it's i feel like it's making people believe they need to settle for less or they need to settle for i don't know i don't know where i'm going with this there's a well there's a there's an author one of my favorite spiritual teachers he passed a couple years ago but i used to go see him speak in arizona his name's uh, dr david r hawkins not to be confused with stephen hawking (laughs) david r hawkins famous for a book called power versus force which is not by any stretch, my favorite book that he wrote, but it's the one that he kind of got the most attention for. He was on Oprah, and you know, for a while there, he was kind of the thing. Wayne Dyer used to talk a lot about him. So he's kind of like a spiritual teacher that influenced a lot of other spiritual teachers. And he contextualizes the ego in the animal part of us, right? Which, as you said, has been necessary for our survival. Like, you have to have some sense of self because that's how you determine... Uh, how you're going to keep yourself safe and st- sustain yourself. So from the point of the in- the point of view of the instincts, like if you don't want to procreate, no more humans. If you don't want to eat, no more you. I mean, there's just like very basic stuff. If you don't want to be liked at least a little bit, you're you're banished from the tribe and left to die on your own. So the instincts are are healthy and therefore I'm um, not something that we can get away from or fight. And this is really in his point of view. And I agree the downfall of a lot of the religious approach is by labeling the ego as sinful and that it's bad and that you have to get rid of it is sort of self-perpetuating its existence. Whereas if you can just acknowledge, okay, there's some maybe destructive or negative aspects of ego, and I'm going to do my best to curtail those through an awareness of it, but not having this inward war where I'm trying to not be a human being. And if I have a lustful thought, I have to punish myself. It's like, dude, you're, it's like the whole thing with, uh, with guys, you know, if you're, I mean, I'm sure some guys are assholes and objectify women in a bad way, but it's like, I grew up with a feminist mom who said, if you like check a girl out, you're, she's just a piece of meat to you and you're objectifying her and you're a bad person. It's like, well, I was designed to like see the female form and go, Hmm, I'd like to procreate with her. It's not that (laughs) I don't think that's a human being that has an inherent value as a soul and like a beautiful, you know, specimen of, of, of humanity, but like, there's a part of me that's going to see that in the corner of my eye and go, Oh, potential mate. That doesn't make me wrong. It's not evil. It's not a sin. It's just, do I have a higher self and an intellect that's capable of knowing that that's just a bodily reaction to procreate, but I can still go to that person and communicate that with them on a soul to soul, respectful level where I'm not like talking to a woman and thinking you are a piece of meat. I can't hear any word you say, you know? So it's like you kind of have to make friends with the ego in order for it to not run your life. At least that's been my experience. The same with, you know, the mind or the intellect. It's like, dude, you can't stop your mind from thinking. That's like trying to stop your heart from beating. And that's why so many people find uh, meditation so frustrating because if you come at meditation from the point of view that it's about stopping your mind and making your mind quiet, you will drive yourself freaking nuts, dude. You can't stop the mind from thinking. You know, that's why TM or or the meditation I practice called Vedic is so appealing to me because it's not about stopping your mind. It's just about repeating your mantra. 
kind of inside your head very softly and quietly. And then your mind comes in, okay, I got to answer those emails. I got to go to the bank. Ah, what if these guys don't hire me? Oh, is the check coming? Does the girl like me? You know, those thoughts are going to come and you just allow them to be there and you allow them to dissipate and you go back to your mantra. So I like the approach just generally of not fighting your own mind, not fighting your ego, but definitely building an awareness as to how destructive they can both be if they're just left unattended to run uh, run rampant, you know? Like, you can't just live with your ego. You're going to have a horrible life. You're going to be a rapacious, selfish bastard that is very lonely. You did, but you, you, did but you can't get better. rid of it. Yeah, You can't get rid of it either. That's the thing. Oh, oh you're going to get rid of Dude, if you're rid of your ego, you're enlightened, and then there's no reason to be in a human body anymore. You wouldn't be in a physical form. You'd ascend to the heavens and... You don't hang out here anymore. So if anyone's still here, they're either, uh, this is to me, an ascended master that's still in a human form for a while to teach other people, like some of the great avatars and sages of, of history, or you're a human being that's still very much animal, part animal, and part spirit. And the animal part of you has got to be kept in check or you're going to lead with the animal and get yourself and everyone else into a lot of trouble. But trying to fight it, oh my God, dude. It's that's, exhausting. Well, it's, it's just, yeah, it's torture. You unpacked it much better than I did. What my point was trying to make that my brain couldn't couldn't reach that end point there, my spark plug wasn't fully reaching, was you're denying your instinct. If right. You're, if you're denying your ego, you're trying to squash it, you're denying your instinct. That's what I was trying to hit, but I couldn't find the word instinct, so you, you did an awesome job. Yeah. Uh, what what's a good mantra for people with with meditation is it is it case by case do you have to have something going on and then you try to <laughs> you try to associate a mantra with it it's it's funny dude there's i forget what there's a woody allen movie where they're like making fun of tm and they're like oh did you get your mantra um in the traditions of transcendental meditation tm which is kind of a worldwide organization uh and vedic meditation which is what i practice they're both come from the same lineage right from few thousand years ago in India or whatever. However, TM kind of became a business. It was taught by the Maharishi. And TM kind of is a worldwide organization. They do a lot of good stuff. I mean, I, I'm all for it. It's awesome. But it's definitely like a business model, whereas Vedic meditation is sort of just a bunch of independent teachers that are passing on the lineage. So when you learn from a Vedic or a TM teacher, I don't know how they get the mantra because I'm not a trained meditation teacher. But a mantra is like a Sanskrit sort of word or sound that I guess they intuit as being a match for you and your karma and your personality. And then they sort of during the process of the, the um, training whisper it in your ear. And then that's your mantra. And you don't tell anyone what your mantra is. It's just oh. tradition. Yeah. So I would never tell anyone mine, but it's just a, it's a, just a, a very simple sound. So um, you could say like, oh, you know, that yeah. could be like your mantra, for example. So. For someone that hasn't been specifically trained, it's the same concept as like uh, watching your breath. That's something that's very common in a lot of meditative practices where you don't try to stop your mind. You don't try to stop your emotions. You just, you know, you listen to your, you listen to and pay attention to your breathing and then your mind kind of wanders. Then you come back to your breathing. It's the same sort of concept. And so one could essentially make up your own mantra. Some, uh, some that people use is so hum or om. Some sort of Sanskrit word. You could look up any word, really, like a popular Sanskrit word for peace or love or whatever it is, and use that, and I'm sure have some of the same effect. And essentially the way the mantra works is it gives your conscious mind something, quote, unquote, to do so that it kind of distracts your mind. It's almost like 
imagine you have a bowl of dog food on the ground and your dog's looking at that and then you throw the ball over in the living room and your dog like forgets about the food and chases after the ball. It's sort of like that with your mantra where you're using your own will to remember to go um, 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 very faintly, very softly in your mind. And then your mind kind of like chases that for a minute and that's where you transcend, where you drop into a space where there's no effect of the thought and no effect of the emotion and that's transcendental. So you sort of drop what I think is like underneath or before thought and it almost feels like you're kind of dreaming, sleeping and that's the sweet spot of meditation. But in Vedic meditation or TM, the goal isn't to get there. The goal is simply to with as little with as little effort as possible to repeat the mantra. That's the only goal of your meditation. And so your mind will start to wander and you go, oh, the mantra. And then you very gently, with very little mental exertion, you come back to that mantra. And it's just, I don't know, it's so simple and so dumb. It's like, how can this work? But I've been meditating like that for, I don't know, five, six years or something. Before that, I tried all kinds of different stuff. And that's been the most effective because there's something to actually do. So I did it this morning. I, I set my timer so I know 20 minutes and I start doing my little mantra. And then I don't want to stop. I look at the clock. It's 17 minutes. I'm like, ah, shit. You know, I actually want to keep going. But the tradition is 20. So I follow the rules. You know, that's there's a reason why it's been handed down over thousands of years as 20 minutes twice a day. But without that mantra, you're sort of just like, I don't know. I find it difficult unless you're doing like headspace or some kind of guided meditation. A lot of people really um, do well with those. But I just I don't know. I like to be able to just meditate wherever I want without having a device around or anything like that. I mean, I can meditate on a park bench in the middle of New York City or on a mountaintop in Colorado. It doesn't really matter. You can meditate with this method anywhere because of that distracting little mantra that sort of like tricks your mind into leaving you alone for a minute so you can dip down into that sort of flow state dream state vibe well it sounds like you're like a you're you're accessing the subconscious is what it sounds like yeah probably probably yeah it's trippy though with this type of meditation there's all sorts of studies and i'm not a you know i don't I don't have like bookmarks of clinical trials and stuff, but there are definitely studies that have measured people during meditation and you get these um, rushes of serotonin and dopamine and all these great neurotransmitters. Um, you go into um, alpha brain waves predominantly. Yeah. It's really interesting like what it does on a physiological level. So it's not, this isn't woo woo stuff. I mean, this is being very studied as we speak so there's more and more actual data and research on the effects of meditation but yeah i think so you know there's what's happening is you're in the way that i was taught is you're sort of you can think of it as like off gassing thought and trauma and stresses that have been accumulated over your whole life to the point where even in my first year of this practice of meditation I became really irritable and angry all the time. And I'm going, what the hell, man? This sucks. You start meditating. I thought I'm going to be Mr. Zen and like walking around blessing people and like <laughs> doing the namaste to them and be like some saint or something. It's like, no, I became such a dick like the first year. And I would go to my teacher like, dude, I, I think I need to stop. Like I'm I'm worse. I have less peace than I did. He's like, no, you're you're releasing stresses that you've accumulated your whole life. And you're right, they, they reside in your subconscious. And when you go into that transcendental space, what happens is those things come up to be released. That's why the goal of this form of meditation is not to 
quote unquote, stop your mind or stop thinking, you'll drive yourself crazy. It's no, if your mind wants to like let go of some painful memories or just weird stuff, you just let it run and then you come back to the mantra. Wow. And then it, and then it runs and then you come back to the mantra. It's not a fight. It's like a surrendered process. But you are accessing the subconscious and behind those traumas and that pain that's being released are creative ideas for a new podcast or a new online product or a painting or a place that you want to go on vacation or a way to improve your relationship with your husband or wife or any number of positive things also come out of that process because you're kind of you're clearing the channel of all of those past stresses so that like new creative ideas can come from the great super conscience is the way I look at it. I've come out of many meditation sessions pretty euphoric where I notice the whether if I'm doing it at sunset especially and the sky has turned colors since before I close my eyes and then what I've been I don't know who told me about this or where I read about the visualization aspect. So I'll really focus on the breath and feeling the inhalation going through the nostrils. I'll feel the air coming out of my nostrils and then adding the visualization part, breathing in like a green, like a green smoke, like a nice green clean cleansing smoke. And then you can kind of see it blend into your lungs and it's mixing with this gray and black and ash and coal. And then you just, and you just exhale the black and the the gray and the charcoal and all you're left with is like a green pure light and then you open your eyes at the end of it sometimes i just get goosebumps immediately as soon as i open my eyes back to the world i see the leaves again flowing on the trees i see the sun i see the clouds moving i hear the birds i kind of come back to my senses almost like how when you end a float tank session and you come back to reality it's that same thing so whatever whatever we're tapping into is interesting and it's Basically, you and I have chatted about there's different ways that you can access that. There's some type of primordial consciousness that's existing there, and we're just accessing it in different ways. So whether it's the float tank, whether it's psychedelics, whether it's meditation, chanting, rhythmic drumming, whether it's some other crazy therapy that we haven't mentioned, you're accessing the same thing. I think there's just a lot of different ways to access it, I guess. Totally. We're saying yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of different trails that lead to the top of the same mountain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for sure. But yeah, that's another thing. You're like, all right, what, what, what are the needle movers? Float tanks have been huge for me too. It's like float tanks are really cool because it's like a forced meditation. Like you, you really can't not, I don't think, at least for me subjectively, I can't not disassociate from my body. And what happens is a lot of us are so trapped in our body and in our thoughts and in our emotions that that's all that's the lens through which we view the world, you know, whereas in a float tank or in a meditation that's transcendental like that, it's like <laughs> you become the witness or the one watching that phenomena. And I always like the question, OK, so if I'm watching a sensation in my body or I'm watching an emotion or I'm watching thoughts, you know, go across the screen of my mind, who's the one watching? What's your answer? Who's the one watching is who you really are. Uh -huh. That's your soul, your spirit, like your, your life force, your higher self, your spiritual self is the one observing that. But without meditation or float tanks or psychedelics or whatever, how can you ever have a, a, um, a break in the awareness to where you're able to step back and go, huh, look, I just saw this little this little tinge of anger or jealousy or envy or resentment or whatever, fear, anxiety. 
I just saw that pop up. It's like, if there's no me watching, then I am that fear, I am that anger, I am that anxiety, and then I'm just reacting to everything throughout my day. Well, let me ask you this. I was just talking with my wife last night, and I said, I can, I told her, I said, I can be my true self, I can be my 100% full true self when I'm watching a movie, especially something that's a bit nostalgic, let's say Forrest Gump or Titanic or something that I had a memory of watching as a kid, the soundtrack comes back to mind, you hear those songs again in the song, in the movie, and you get the goosebumps, you get the chills again, and then it's like you're, you're your true self again. Do you think movies and music, is that just another way of accessing the same thing we're talking about with float tanks and meditation, or you think it's something else? That's interesting. I never thought about it in terms of movies. I have to think about that. Okay. I don't know that I don't know that I have that experience, but I would say with music, absolutely. I mean, that is like powerfully transcendent. I mean, think about when I was a kid, I think about uh, like when I first heard Jimi Hendrix. I mean, like, dude, if that wasn't a spiritual experience, what was? I never heard anything like that in my life. I'm watching cartoons and, like, I know Disney songs or whatever. And then all of a sudden, you know, I go to my uncle's house and put Jimi Hendrix, um, you know, Foxy Lady or Purple Haze on the on the record player and crank that. I used to do that because my mom would uh, clean his house in exchange for babysitting. And she'd be vacuuming at the other end of the house. And she'd go, okay, you can go turn the music up as loud as you want. And I'd turn on that Jimi Hendrix. And I mean, it was just like... I would go insane, you know? It was yes. so euphoric because I was having an experience that transcended my body, my emotions, my mind. There was something just so electric about that experience, you know? And I think humans, that's that's all we're really seeking a lot of the time is to have an experience that's different from just the immediate thoughts and feelings that we experience. But movies, that's interesting. I guess, you know, movies do kind of take you away into another into another state of consciousness to a degree, but I've never, like, actually made that connection. That's cool. Well, I, well when I came out of The Revenant, I went to the movie theater to see The Revenant because I knew it was going to be something worth seeing in a theater because I knew the, the cinematography, I knew the scenery of The Revenant was going to be great. Same thing with Star Wars. I've seen some of the Star Wars movies in theater, and when I come out of those where you've just been flying around the universe for a couple right, hours, right. you exit the movie theater and it's almost like a small rebirth for me. Maybe that's not everyone, but for me, I come out and I have this new perception of, wow, we're on the planet, we're flying through space, everything is alive, the wind, the trees, kind of that Native American view on nature, the rocks, the trees, everything's alive, the planet is breathing, I'm breathing, my heart's beating. I don't know. There's something about that experience for me. Maybe it's the same thing, though. Maybe we're, maybe we're talking about all you know. All trails lead to the same top of the mountain, like you said. But when I come back from a movie, which I haven't seen any since the baby's uh, since the baby's been born, but when I come back from that experience, I guess it's a mild rebirth. Maybe it's the soundtrack too, though. I guess there's a soundtrack associated with the movie too. But like the Revenant. I felt like I was literally in the late 1800s. I was going along <laughs> right, right. with these fur traders. And then I was almost kind of sad to come back into 2016 or 17 and see everybody on their phones and see everyone shoving popcorn and giant uh, sodas down their throats. You know, part of me wished that I would have just came out of the movie theater and there would have just been a field with bison roaming in it instead. And then I was kind of like whiplashed back into reality, uh, almost like the, reintegra the reintegration process happened too quickly, and I was almost put off by it. And then, of course, I get my phone and 
get to get to call my wife and chat with her again. So I was like, oh, technology is not so bad after all. Maybe I wonder what percent of our mental illness is caused from a deficiency of acts of accessing the subconscious. I mean, think about all these different hunter-gatherer species and these Amazonian tribes and such that they had a rite of passage where when they went from a teenager to a man or a girl to a woman, they had some rite of passage, whether it was like a, I can't even think of what you call those, a smokehouse or whatever, where you go through those smoke sessions. Sweat lodge. Yeah, sweat lodge. Yeah, yeah, those are cool. You've got that. I mean, they've you've got the ayahuasca sessions that the... Uh, teenagers are put on i've read even some tribes they put their kids on ayahuasca when they're five years old you've got you've got you've got psychedelic you've got mushrooms you've got cannabis i mean i wonder and how would you know how how would we ever i think so much of this has been lost in history i wonder was it a weekly thing was it a monthly thing for our ancestors i guess does it depend on the tribe and what plant medicine would have been there locally like what what was the ratio of days living in normal reality, I have to eat, sleep, et cetera, versus days where you're just daydreaming and you're just not in your own body? I, I must assume you would say the ratio has got to be extremely slanted in the modern world where we're in reality too much as opposed to in our own in our own minds. Totally. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, think about it. It kind of makes me think of when you go camping you know, you go camping and like, sure, your truck's right there, your car's right there, and you have your coolers and you have all this modern gear. And then there's, you know, you got to prepare some food and take care of the kids and this and that. But then then there's really nothing else to do. You don't have cell service. And then you find yourself like kind of wandering around or you go on a little walk or there's some water around and then you just kind of trip out. You might just lay there or lay in a ham. You know what I mean? There's definitely time where you just like go into outer space and take a nap in the middle of the day. And I mean, I imagine that that's what life was kind of like. Probably you, you went out and spent some time and energy procuring food and sustenance and water and things like that. And then the rest of the time, you're pretty much celebrating around the fire with music or fermented beverages or, you know, plant medicines and just making love or just chilling. I mean, to me, it's like, I, you know, I'm listening to Daniel Vitalis' show so much too. I'm like, uh, I think the way we think about ancient peoples or indigenous peoples that they really suffered i'm like no dude we're the ones suffering you know for the most part we've evolved to have plenty of time for introspective thought and solitude and reflection and relaxation and all of those things that now are like we have to designate a special name for them like it's called self-care and it's like a it's like a part of our life that we have to take time to go do it's not just built in unless you, you know, like people like me and like you have built it into a habit where it's non-negotiable. It's not like a special thing that, oh, on some days I do some things to take care of myself. It's like just part of that. Well, think and, about, and, dude, I got to, I got to piggyback off that so I don't lose it. Even at the bookshelf, you've got to have a category now, self-help or a category, spirituality, right. <laughs> right? as opposed to, I just wandered off. I got kind of lost in this field. Oh, wow. There's an elephant. Whoa. Look at this giraffe eating these leaves off this tree. Like, I don't know. Right. I know we've yeah. got to wrap it up. We're running out yeah. of time, but um, it's all good, man. That's good stuff. I mean, this is this. I could talk about this all day long. And, you know, as we kind of started with, it's like, huh, you know, we could talk about bone broth for two hours or we could talk about, you know, transcending your animal nature and actually having access to who you really are. Well, you know, I want, which is cool. I, I want to hear last a last uh, word of wisdom from you. But for me, I think in summary, 
and you've 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 said it more eloquently than I did, but you've got to have more time for reflection. If you just keep going, 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 and then it's five or ten years before you look back and then reevaluate where you're headed, I think you may be angry at the way things turned out. But if you just have more periods of reflection at a sooner interval, that's going to give you much more time to pivot versus like you're in a little jet ski as opposed to a Titanic. It's much more easy. You can much more easily maneuver the jet ski if you're just a smaller, little more mobile vehicle with your thoughts as opposed to just I'm set on this one career or I'm set on this one trajectory. I can only take the boat to New York. That's it. Then you you kind of screw yourself. Yeah, I, I agree, dude. I agree. I think one of the most valuable practices for me has been not just the, you know, the dis- disconnecting and taking time for myself to reflect and kind of just quiet the mind and meditation, all the stuff we've been talking about, but is really getting in the habit and practice of a, a personal inventory of oneself, like really looking really brutally honestly at myself and my life and what progress I've made and what things I need to work on yet without being self-obsessed and, you know, like not in that sense, but I think it's important to do journaling and writing and just kind of, you know, looking at areas in which I'm still afraid or, um, I'm still trapped. I'm still caught up attachments to people or a title or a job. It's like, dude, I was in a job for years that I was totally unaware that I didn't even like. I liked it for a few years, but I did it for a few years and I actually didn't like it at all. It took a friend of mine, actually my business partner, to say like, dude, why are you still a stylist? You don't actually seem very happy when you're on those jobs. And then as soon as the job's over, you seem super happy. And I had to look at that. So I had to kind of reflect and be honest with myself and go, you know what? Why am I still motivated to do that? And what I found in that example, just from brutal self-honesty, and I'll be brutally self-honest with you, is like a lot of my identity and self-worth was wrapped up in being like, I'm a celebrity stylist. It's like, cool, that's a great elevator, a pitch, you know what I mean? It's like, what do you do? Oh, nothing. I just dress celebrities in Hollywood. <laughs> you know, it's like, what, you know, what, who am I without that? You know, so I had to look, I'm kind of attached to that and money, you know, the money involved is good money and all that. So not that there's anything wrong with doing that particular career, but what's limiting is not having the awareness of what my motives are. And this is like, this is the fruits of that, of that time alone and the meditation, all the things we're talking about is to really find those hidden crevices, um, where I'm not being fully truthful with myself or I'm afraid to look at something that's, that I'm doing that's just become habitual but might not necessarily be serving my highest good so that self-honesty and reflection and inventory journaling that kind of stuff where i'm periodically stopping to go all right luke what are you doing with your life man and could you be serving yourself and the world um in a more effective way i gotta say this and then we'll end it the things that cause the most resistance are usually the things that give the highest reward like you just mentioned self-reflecting on things that you shouldn't be doing anymore that you're still doing simple example much different than changing careers Uh, my wife despises changing the water and cleaning out the fish tank so we've got a beta fish we travel with this little guy across the country twice he survived uh, in a mason jar we put him in a mason jar with some water and then left him in the cup holder while we traveled and drove cross country to move to texas and back he's still making it uh, <laughs> that's awesome i know i know he's a trooper but as as time goes on if you don't have a super fancy filtration system which for this tank we don't we uh, you just have the water and you've got a plant in there the water just starts to get dirty and you start to build up algae over time she has so much resistance against cleaning that tank 
Then she cleans the tank and she feels so amazing. She's got the biggest boost, the biggest happiness. Like, oh, look how happy he is swimming in his clean tank now. Simple example, but I find that things that take a little bit of resistance, you're going to get a little bit of reward. Things that take huge resistance, things that really suck to do them at the time, like go introspective. I don't like this career. I don't like the path I'm on anymore. The reward is so much greater if you pursue those deeper things. It just it just hurts so much more to actually do it. Absolutely, I would agree. So, yeah. Anyway, where there's where there's pain, there's gain. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure, dude. Yeah. Well, always good, always good talking with you. This was like a decompression episode. I mean, I feel like sometimes the podcast episodes get intense, and I know you see this too with certain uh, with certain guests. So I would say, in a way, this was definitely therapy for me, uh, chatting with you and interviewing you on the show. So it's been a blast, and I want people to check out. Definitely the episode I did with you because uh, I think it's pretty fun. I talked about myofascial release and how I had this big breakthrough with some repressed fear that I didn't know I had stuck in my physical body. So definitely look up um, Luke's podcast on iTunes. You've got your website, Luke Story with an E S T O R E Y, LukeStory.com, where people can check out. You've done a great job on your store, by the way, trying to accumulate all sorts of various potions and um, magic powders and things like that and uh, different resources for people for water, even things like that. Um, any other things I didn't mention? That's that's really where I live is the Lifestylist podcast. That's kind of my crown jewel of content. And then I also screw around a lot on Instagram, which is at Luke Stories. You said L-U-K-E-S-T-O-R-E-Y. I do a lot of Instagram stories of my adventures out in the woods and biohacking and float tanks and playing guitar and I just I'm always acting a fool on Instagram so that's a great way to interact but yeah the podcast is really like my main jam that's that's what I have the most fun doing and I think provides the most value and you've got um for your fans you've got two episodes because we did one early on I think it was like number four or five um almost a year ago now yeah cool well um, so yeah I told you I uninstalled the Instagram app on my phone uh, as a way to Good for you, dude. <laughs> that's a that's a that's a hole that you can get yourself in. Uh, so for sure, you might have to consider uh, turning your Instagram stories into like a YouTube vlog instead. That way, I can watch your YouTube videos. Noted, noted. Yeah, I okay. can't wait till the day where I can hire someone to run my Instagram and just like text them photos and captions, so I'm not tempted to go into that vortex because it's it's yeah. a it's a sticky one. I've just I, I've got my wife to upload photos for me. That's what I do now. Just have her log into the account, upload a photo to the Instagram. That way I just don't even have to, I don't even go there because it's just, uh, it's, uh, it's a place where you can lose some time. Awesome, man. Good idea. Well, thanks for having me, man. Take care, Luke. All right. Look forward to talking to you again. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that, Luke. Awesome to talk with you as always. If you want to check out Luke's show, look him up, Luke's story. Got a great podcast. Had a lot of cool guests on there. I've been on there. It's funny how Luke and I met. It's really fun. I was out in California a couple years ago for the Bulletproof Conference, went and got to hang out with Dave Asprey and some of his friends, and hung out with Daniel Vitalis, and Luke happened to be at uh, this house that Daniel was staying at, and we were all having some dinner there together, and I was talking to somebody, and he goes, are you Evan Brand? I said, yeah, and uh, he goes, oh, I recognized your voice, and I thought, oh, yeah, I guess I forgot I talked for a living to people. So that was pretty cool. He just recognized my voice. He's like, oh man, I've been listening to your podcast for a long time and really enjoyed it. So that was a fun way to really meet each other. 
And I think it was Luke or maybe it was Daniel. I don't know. Somebody had some spring water that they brought like fresh from the mountain that day. And I remember we were drinking and talking about how delicious this uh, spring water was. When I say drinking, I mean water. I wasn't drinking alcohol and uh, it was just so fun. Anyhow, I'm just rambling. If you uh, want a functional medicine consult with myself, I'd love to help you out. I work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, working with new clients. Mondays, I do trainings for people. So I'm training practitioners, so nutritionists, you know, NTPs, medical docs, naturopaths, other people that want help in terms of their practice, their clinical skills, designing protocols, sharing all of my secrets. That's what Mondays are for. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays, I'm doing clinic stuff. So you can visit my site, evanbrand.com. And when you're there, you can schedule a call. If you want to just peek around and look at some of my custom formulas, you can do that too. If you click the button that says Aura Store, that's my supplement company, Aura. AuraRoots.com is the site that you'll get redirected to. I just launched my amino acid line, which is helping with neurotransmitters. So I just released a super high quality L-tyrosine. I released a 5-HTP formula. I released uh, released a DLPA or DL-phenylalanine formula. And I also released a Phenobit product, PhenoGABA. PhenoGABA crosses the blood-brain barrier much better than just straight GABA. PhenoGABA works great. Great, great product. So learn more about those at the site. Check it out. Peek around. I look forward to talking with you next week. In the meantime, take care. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Bye-bye.